millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little bit deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted to be joined today by my co-host, Sue Regan. Hello, Sue. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Martin. It's good to be here. Oh, so what have you been up to since we last had you in the podcast cupboard here? Oh, so I've, I've been busy um, in my other role at the Institute of Public Administration Australia. We've had our annual conference, which was looking at the uh, independent review of the Australian public service. Um, we had an interesting session last night on human-centred design of public policy. Um, so yeah, busy kind of winding up for the end of the year as well. That's a that's a big thing in public policy circles at the moment, human-centred design, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we called the event um, Beyond the Hype because I think there's been a lot of, uh, yeah, hype about it. It's, you know, um, really popular. People are talking about it, but what does it really mean? And we were really trying to dig into what human-centred design looks like in practice. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a good event. And it sounds like you've had a busy few months of events with the, uh, with, with the organisation. Yes, yes, we have. And we're kind of winding down for the end of the year now, thankfully, but um, still, still a few more to go. Well, we're not winding down for the end of the year just yet. We've still got a few podcasts to go. And today on the pod, we are going to take a deep dive into the issue of water justice. Despite depending on it for our survival, water is something that few of us living in the West devote much attention to in our daily lives. That is until there's a crisis of some kind. And earlier this year, Australian farmers made headlines as they confronted what some have called the worst drought in living memory. This comes in the same year in which Australia's governance of the Murray-Darling Basin reeled from long-standing accusations of corruption and mismanagement and the waste of billions of litres of water and billions of taxpayer dollars. As climate change starts to affect Australia's rainfall patterns, we can expect to see greater threats to urban water supplies, the agricultural sector and natural ecosystems. And we can also expect greater threats to Australia's first peoples, many of whom depend on ailing waterways for their economic and cultural survival. And as we're going to hear on today's episode, such issues are ultimately a matter of justice. So how can policymakers navigate the deep currents of environmental damage, intergenerational ethics and indigenous water rights? Is the tide turning in Australian water policy for the better? Or will the country find itself high and dry in the years ahead? This will be hosted by Professor Quentin Grafton. Uh, For those playing at home, Quentin is on our rotating collection of presenters here on the podcast. 
Uh, he's a professor of economics um, and ANU public policy fellow at the Crawford School. And he's also editor-in-chief of Policy Forum. Uh, Quentin will be hosting a conversation with two experts in the field of water policy. Um, the first expert is Virginia Marshall. She's inaugural Indigenous postdoctoral fellow with the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance, otherwise known as Regnet, um, and at the Fenner School of Environment and Society. She's also a practicing lawyer and duty solicitor a former associate and researcher with the Federal Court of Australia in Sydney. And she's very much in demand as a, a keynote speaker on Indigenous water law and governance. Uh, the second expert joining Quentin and Virginia is Catherine Taylor. Catherine Taylor is a PhD scholar here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, her research is exploring water governance and Indigenous water policy in Western Australia. And her supervisor is Quentin Grafton. Yeah, so two fantastic experts and a very meaty topic, so which we'll get to in a second. But before we do, a quick reminder to our listeners that we are really keen to get your thoughts on what we talked about today or what we talked about on any of our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us through an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Stick around after the main interview because Sue and I will be going over some of your comments and questions that we've received both on the podcast and through our website, policyforum.net. We'll be back after this, but for now, let's hand over to Quentin. So let's get started. Today we've got Dr. Virginia Marshall and we have Ms. Kat Taylor to talk to us about the big picture issues in Australia about water. The first up is going to be a discussion about water justice, and that's a big picture issue if I've ever come across it. So let's get started with you first, Virginia, in terms of water justice. And I don't just mean this for Indigenous Australians. I know you're an Indigenous Australian, but what do you think about when you think about water justice? What does it mean for you? And what does it mean in a global perspective? Well, the big justice issue for us is not being invisible in that national water initiative and in that national space of who gets to be the stakeholders in water and Indigenous peoples in Australia are certainly asking for social justice, but I think we're looking at also climate justice in that um, really bigger picture. Yeah, so it's about the, the people perspective, the voice for, for, for people and for, the, for, for vulnerable communities, and it's the environmental context as well, isn't it, when you talk about climate change. But uh, can we go back to you, Cad, in terms of the bigger picture stuff? So how would we, if you, if you wanted to describe water justice compared to, let's say, water security, what would be the difference between them? And are there, is there any difference? And, and uh, how, would they, how are they at the United Nations in New York? How would they think about water justice? And how would they think about it's different to, let's say, water security? Look, I think it, like any of these things, perhaps it depends on your defini definition and your framework. When we talk about water security, we can talk about it in a really broad way. And that, um, for example, the United Nations water definition of water security does bring into these questions of peace and, and justice and uh, the institutions that help us to manage water in a way that's fair. Having said that, sometimes when we're talking about water security, it's in a very narrow way and often uh, it's in an unquestioning way. I mean, water security f for who and perhaps at, at what cost and, you know, and what about 
what I mean when we talk about water in general, sometimes we think about it just for for human beings, but of course, water security is land security. It's you know making sure we have a future for ourselves. So it's not just about any individual person or, or business. Yeah, so water justice is a lot more than just H2O. It's a lot about people as well, isn't it? So if I'm picking up the, that message from, from all of you. So, I mean, in terms of the global perspective, there's you know more than 2 billion people globally who don't have access to potable water that they could drink without some sort of treatment. And of course, there's a whole set of people who don't have access to adequate uh, water, sanitation, and health uh, facilities. So that's a that's a big picture issue globally. But but of course, we in Australia tend to think that all's uh, all's fine for us here. Rich country, lots of lots of desal plants, and everything's going fine apart from the farmers who maybe not getting enough during the drought. So let's sort of bring it down to this idea of justice, as you pointed out, both of you. So so how would we fit water justice into a bigger picture stuff in the context of, let's say, environmental justice or justice for indigenous people or, or whatever, justice in general? Because <laughs> when I think of justice, I think of laws and regulations and what, and, and I know you're a lawyer, Virginia, among other and other attributes and, uh, and uh, successes and experiences you have. But how can you can you give us a sense of what that justice means? Yeah, well, I think for us, coming uh, from a social justice perspective, it means law reform and policy reform. And really, you know, we always talk about human rights and and we espouse human rights in so many different contexts in Australia, but there is no human rights um, that sit in the Water Act, Commonwealth, for example. Um, there is no human rights such as the Racial Discrimination Act um, that sits in state and territory laws. So we're not even in that space yet. We're not even articulating how human rights have to be dealt with and have to be treated and have to be recognised for Indigenous people. So we're in the very low bar, the lowest threshold in Australia. So we really need to talk about these issues and then we need to act. So coming from a law reform background, from the Australian Law Reform Commission, that's where this issue needs to be dealt with and having an inquiry into uh, water resources, but especially Indigenous water rights at that level. So a Royal Commission, would you be recommending a Royal yes, Commission? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think that when the, um, uh, the idea of participating as an Indigenous person in this national space, if we're invisible, we'd have to question those several hundred years of Western management versus 100,000 years of pristine environment and also a space where Aboriginal peoples really have been oppressed. So we need to really look at those issues through a Royal Commission. That's a good start in terms of moving us forward. So, so Kat, in terms of the UN declarations and uh, for Indigenous rights, how does that fit into this water justice, environmental justice, and, and where does Australia fit in in terms of what it's signed up to or, or not signed up to? Oh, I think, I mean, as you're alluding to, Australia is a signatory to the United Nations uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And there are a lot of uh, specific uh, provisions there for Indigenous peoples that uh, theoretically Australia should be looking at. And But um, un- unfortunately, I don't feel like this declaration has been taken up by the water management sector. If anything, it's been ignored and, and put in the corner as something that's maybe not for people in water management to think about in any kind of depth. Um, 
but clearly that uh, needs to change. So, so you're saying they're in silos. So we we in Australia signed up for this declaration, uh, but we we haven't actually done anything in terms of our laws on our acts in terms of water. Is that is that? Is well, that given right? we're okay. here with the uh, expert, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I have written about this in overturning Aquinalius, securing Aboriginal water rights, um, and the the most important thing is that yes, we have UNDRIP, um, we ratified it. And we've done nothing with it. But the the whole idea is it's a non-binding instrument. So Articles 25, 26 and 31 really do express that we have a right, but we've only got a right on paper. Um, We haven't taken that on board in the Water Acts. We haven't taken that on board with the National Water Initiative. So we seriously need to look at these issues and be passionate about it. And we talk about treaties, we talk about constitutional recognition, but the fundamental question is where do our rights to water start and end? So this is not about just pieces of paper, is it? It's about going from paper to to voice to to actual water. So... Can I go back to you, Kat, and then I'll go back to you, Virginia, in terms of pursuing this. So, so what do we mean in terms of actual water? I mean, how does it work out? Does it does it is it about is it about Indigenous Australians uh, having water rights? Is it Indigenous Australians having water management uh, rights? Was Indigenous Australians making decisions about? The, the big picture issues about water? Or... From the point of view as a non-Indigenous person who works within water, even just acknowledging that we have a problem, if you want, you can call it a governance gap, you can say that the system is broken, whichever way you want to express it, we need to look at this and have some commitment to addressing it. So Yeah, well, I think the biggest issue um, that we had a couple of years ago was when water was moved into the Department of Agriculture in the Commonwealth status of water. And um, I think we were gobsmacked uh, again, you know, the farmers and uh, others who came here in those early 1800s and uh, started to change the landscape as we knew it, um, we were just gobsmacked that water was put into agriculture that used to sit into the environment. Uh, even though we didn't have the rights that existed uh, when it did sit in the environment portfolio, um, it really gave a message that we weren't important um, and that it was most important that farmers and others, other stakeholders, had the rights to water and we didn't. Uh, so I think really we need to look at those issues again through those eyes of human rights and and really add on that schedule of the Water Commonwealth Act 2007 that the UNDRIP sits within that schedule because that was one of the issues that the um, commissioner in the Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, South Australia, and those issues to do with um, the Murray River uh, are concerned with. And the commissioner was concerned with that as well. So um, we need to really listen to those messages and we need to see that if uh, others in government aren't taking note of those instruments, those human rights instruments in that schedule of the Water Act, then we've got no hope. So we need to be really drawing attention to this as a a short-term issue that needs long-term solutions. I wonder if maybe we could think a little bit about how these things are often framed and and what we're trying to achieve. Because often um, it, it is sort of changing slowly, but within water management we see things like engaging Indigenous people in water planning, maybe um, talking about participatory water management, stakeholder involvement, that sort of language. But I mean, is that really going to solve the problem? I mean, Virginia, what are we looking for in terms of 
I don't know, representation and concrete rights? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a bit like building an apartment block. You don't start and think about the interior decorating. You've got to build those foundations. And we don't have those foundations yet. And the best way of looking at it is to have a national framework, but it has to be consulted with all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups in Australia. So what would that national framework look like? Um, What does um, a new National Water Commission look like with an Indigenous unit, for example? Um, There's a whole range of things that are important, but that national framework that's an Indigenous framework that sits within that National Water Initiative is so important. So we've got a lot of work to do from what you're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you highlighted Virginia, the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission underway in South Australia at the moment. They'll report uh, in February 2019. So we'll we'll get to know what the commissioner is saying and what he's thinking. So let's just go step back a bit, I suppose, from the legal management governance issue, as important as that is, and we can come back to that. But but what what is water to to uh, Indigenous Australians? I mean, what is what's different to them in the context of water that's different to let's say uh, someone uh, like me <laughs> uh, who's not an Indigenous Australian? What what are the what are the differences that we could highlight that are that are relevant to the discussion that we've had about water justice? Is there anything you want to highlight? I'll go to you first, of course, Virginia. But I'd like to come back to you, Cat, as well as a non-Indigenous Australian, whether you've got some some views about from your perspective, your personal perspective. So over to you first, Virginia. Well, I guess um, as a practicing lawyer and, and also writing a lot on these different areas, it, you you really get the feeling on all of the, the projects and um, the opportunities that are out there that we're just regarded as a minority, a special interest group. Uh, but this is the change that we need to have first. We need to have Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islander peoples seen as the first Australians, the first peoples of this country. And I think that we need to look at the language. So the language of first peoples. So once we're really conscious about that and we adopt that position, then we're saying that everybody else are stakeholders, but we're the key stakeholder. So that's an important change. Um, The other thing is that Water is really important to us because it's our identity. And I've written that in the book largely because it's an ontological view of the world. And there's Western ontologies, there is Indigenous ontologies, but it's our identity. For example, if you're a saltwater person, you have an affinity to the coast, you have an affinity to um, the relationships with all the plants and the animals and the environment. If you're a freshwater person, um, you have a relationship with that freshwater and your identity stems from that. Even though you mightn't live on country, your birthright is from that country, the same as it would be if you were from a desert people. Uh, Your identity, the very being, the very understanding of who you are comes from that. So I think that we need to be conscious about that part of Aboriginal people's identity in water. We're not just turning a tap on. We're not just seeing the water come out of that tap. We're actually seeing that it's intrinsic and it's inherent for Aboriginal peoples to hold that identity, to look after it, to be responsible for it. So it's all of those kinship relationships that are us. So that's very different from a Western perspective. Yeah, so a farmer irrigation perspective where water's the commodity, it's an input into a production process, it delivers value. That's a different perspective than what you're talking about. But but can I go to you, Kat, so from your perspective, I'm not 
Yeah, not speaking sure. for anyone else, but but as a non-indigenous Australian, I know you've done a, doing a lot of work on, on water issues. Uh, where would you place the the differences in the context of water and water values from an indigenous Australian perspective, vis-a-vis the sort of a perspective that uh, is commonly thought through in the context of the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources, for example? Well, I think it's always worth remembering that when we get water right, that means we're getting land management right. It means we're getting business and economic growth right. It means that we're getting, you know, our, our health um, right as well. It means that we're looking after as well animals and, and the land. It means also we're getting energy right as well because water is linked to that. So I think water is never just water. Water is a lot of different things. In terms of First Peoples, though, I think the question comes down to what kind of an Australia do we, do we want to live in? Do we want to impetuate this injustice and push this issue uh, to the to the corner and or do we want to actually do something about it and learn from it and take advantage of this incredible opportunity that Australians, you know, the incredible Australia that we could have if we're willing to change our perspective. Yeah, so if we just take that a little further perhaps and, and, and look at um, maybe thinking about some solutions or pathways forward, because from what I've been hearing, there's, there's the injustice, there's injustice in all sorts of dimensions and it goes back a long period of time. But what can we do to, to actually take this the next step? Obviously, there's the investigation, the audit, the, the Royal Commission. Obviously, there's some legal aspects of it. But what about what about how we manage our, our water in our landscape and storing water or transferring water, using water, extracting water? Is there are there any insights that we can learn from that from a from a water justice perspective about how we would how we would manage that water and how it, how it goes from A to B or B to C or, or whatever it might be? Is there anything that we can sort of learn from that? Yeah, I think I think we can learn a lot of lessons, um, but whether we actually do what a change that's another question, and one of those issues would be the current Adani. Um, uh, water licences, the Adani water licences that don't have any conditions, um, the um, backing of the, the national government and the state government um, on a project that um, is very flimsy as far as uh, the evidence on what it can provide, not only in employment, but what it can provide to protection of the environment. There's no guarantees. And that's why I've called for, in my book, uh, for the Equator Principles to be really written in to the Water Acts, um, but State and Territory Water Acts. We need to have a threshold when people want to develop those projects um, that they can't just be asking us Australian taxpayers for money. Uh, they have to guarantee that protection of the environment. And we've got a lot of um, areas in Australia that have been uh, mined and they've not been rehabilitated and they're sitting there. They're old mine sites. And we don't want Adani to perpetuate, uh, like many of the others have over the years, to just have a hole in the ground and to have no water. One of the most pristine sites in the oasis next to that proposed mine site is um, water that's drinkable, um, that is old water, ancient water. So we need to protect those things. And, and you can't bring it back to its... F- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. First state where it was pristine. That's impossible once it's contaminated. Um, you, you can um, alter it in certain ways, but it's not pristine. So we need to look at these issues through the equator principles and not fund those projects that the banks have signed up to not funding that don't meet those standards. And the Water Acts do not have that included. So we need to have that recognition because that's our identity. That's not just water. That's not just the environment. Those are the relationships that we need to maintain and care for country. You mentioned Adani and the, 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 the proposed mines up in the Galilee Basin in Queensland. Are there anything else that you'd want to highlight in the context of Northern Australia, uh, subsidies, infrastructure, whatever that, I mean, you highlighted the, the, the issue of the, the private investments there, but are there any other issues that, that, that you want to discuss in the context of water, water justice? Something that I think is worth noting, and I, I think, um, Peter, you mentioned it a, f- a few weeks ago on another Policy Forum podcast, is when, when we're looking at Northern Australia and this Northern Australia development agenda, there's a push to build the economy. And a lot of the ways that is um, conceptualised is through infrastructure. And of course, there's nothing wrong with infrastructure. We always need infrastructure. But we have to think about the soft infrastructure, the institutions that support these things. And when we're talking about water, uh, one of the conditions of funding is to look at uh, secure and, and tradable water rights in Northern Australia. Now, neither Western Australia nor the Northern Territory have shifted their water entitlement frameworks, uh, pardon, their water access entitlements to be consistent with the National Water Initiative. The question is why? And also, if we are talking about property rights and we are talking about water and we are talking about getting something changing in Northern Australia, we have to look at the underlying structural issues. And I'm, you know, not the first person to point it out. There's actually a great book that's just come out recently called uh, Sustainable Land Sector Development in Northern in Australia. But getting these structural issues right it should be the first step. And there's been very little investment into it. So this is a, not so when we talk about infrastructure, most of us, we say, oh, it's about, you know, roads or it's uh, electricity cables or it's a, a dam or something. That's the hard infrastructure. Mm. But what you're talking about, CAD, CAD is, the, is the soft infrastructure, the frameworks. And, yeah, I'm talking and, about transforming the relationship between yes. the Australian Commonwealth Government and First Peoples in a, in a positive way. So how do we do that in the, in the north? Uh, is, it, is it what you've already outlined, Virginia, or, or is there something, something more. else? Yeah. yeah, there is something more. Uh, I think at this stage we can learn from history that Aboriginal peoples generally uh, in these recent times have been consulted or people have been picked out for those special Indigenous leaders um, that usually don't have the voice of the community at heart. Um, so we, we need to really think that the Northern development is uh, one that comes with a lot of baggage. It has a lot of history and it's been also researched quite uh, widely since the 50s. And the message is it has high evaporation. It's an arid place. So why are we going to rush into any northern development? The only reason that traditional owners are actually um, involved in these conversations is that they own native title land, exclusive native title land, which has water on it. Um, if uh, traditional owners didn't have that exclusivity, there wouldn't be any negotiations with Aboriginal people at this particular stage. So um, the document that the 
Commonwealth Government put out, uh, which talks about the five pillars, doesn't have a sixth pillar about Indigenous people. There is no pillar. So that concerns me. The other thing that concerns me in that report is that it just talks about um, investing in ranger programs, which is important, and women's uh, ranger programs, very important to people who are caring for country on their homelands, that they've been born to and have had thousands of years of um, uh, of their homeland, uh, not only at um, uh, the most important part of, of furthering uh, language and culture, but we come to this northern development um, with a question mark. Are we really sincere about changing the Native Title Act, that others can participate in those um, positive reforms into uh, water f- infrastructure? How is that going to um, flesh out in real terms? Does it mean that um, Aboriginal people are always going to be consulted, always going to be able to in- be in a position to be informed um, and have uh uh, really strong and capable people uh, providing those um, uh, negotiations on behalf of those prescribed body corporates. So we need to really see um, if Aboriginal people are going to be incorporated in enjoying those fruits. But it really is a contested space that we're not sure whether the heart of the government is really for Aboriginal people um, to walk with them or if foreign investment is going to be such an important part of the agenda that Aboriginal people will be consulted and then shut out. Yeah, so when we talk about consultation, it's a, is it a direction rather than a negotiation, rather than a dialogue? And, and that's the big question. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're opposed to those sorts of developments in terms of water resources. And until and unless there is that meaningful dialogue and water rights. So, I, is that correct? Before we, yeah, we can actually go, that's the first step. And the second step is whatever that development might be. But that's the first step. Well, that's really important that, because, you, you know, you're in a science and policy background and I'm a lawyer and I love evidence. So, we're really on that same page. But we need to be identifying what we want to do and when do we want to do it? Um, so that's the long-term and the short-term vision, but it really is about one opportunity. You know, if this runs away from Aboriginal traditional owners, that's it. It's finished. And also the repercussions on the environment, as well as Aboriginal communities and homelands, um, are also in jeopardy. But it, we also have to look at um, how that will pan out because there will need to be changes to the Water Act. There will need to be changes to the Native Title Act for others to benefit and enjoy from those changes. So it's just not going to be situated in the north. It's going to have repercussions for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who hold that native title land, but also the expectation that the Water Act has to change and it also means the expectation that National Water Initiative has to be reformed. We only have three discretionary clauses, three, 52 for water sharing planning to be accounted in and 53 and 54 for native title to be accounted. So what about Aboriginal Lands Trust legislation? What about Aboriginal Reserves? 
Um, what about all the other types of legislation? You know, the, the Water Management Act in New South Wales, for example, is that going to be changed? Are we going to represent those Indigenous water values and those rights to water? Because when we had those changes under the Howard government, um, to have that national water initiative, um, we were shut out of those consultations. So we need to be in that um, room, same room, that these discussions take place, but well-informed and well-advised. Thank you, Virginia. So if we go into the future, because it sounds like a big ask <laughs> and a lot of things have got to happen to get this right for Australia and globally. So so if, if I were to project as 10, 20, 30 years into the future for both of you here, are you optimistic that we're going to get it right here in Australia? Are we going to do the right thing? And uh, <laughs> asking you to look in the crystal ball here, but do you think we're going to do it? I say yes, because no is not an option. What do you think, Virginia? I think I've got two crystal balls. One crystal ball is for Indigenous peoples, and I think one isn't. Um, and uh, because I'm not much for tarot reading and, and uh, all of those uh, metaphysical sciences, I think that I'm really a realist. Um, I think there are opportunities, but those opportunities have to be grounded in being realistic. Uh, we've had nearly 200 years of on-the-ground changes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, we still don't have constitutional recognition. That's been sidelined. We no longer talk about treaty options. That's been sidelined. Uh, we, we really want to be recognised as First Peoples. That hasn't entered the conversation and the consciousness of Australians. You know, we've walked the bridge. We've put hands in the ground with ANTAR. We've had reconciliation. We've had reconciliation action plans. And, you know, really, I think a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, just like um, when the researchers come, and they, are, they say, well, we've got something new for you. And Aboriginal people say, you're about the, you know, the 40th person this month that's come on country wanting something. But I, I guess what I can say on, on their behalf is what do you really have for me and my community? You know, can you provide really clean drinking water? In the Kimberley, they've got Pandanus Park. They've got bottled water, contaminated water, wastewater sitting on top of an aquifer. You know, we've got Mount Isa, we've got lead poisoning, we've got extractive industries, you know, that create all sorts of health issues. So we have to look at this realistically. And once we do that, once we're really wanting to um, participate in a future where we're listening to Aboriginal people and we're acting on their advice, um, such as the, the parliamentary voice um, for um, uh, the government, I think that that's an option because that would provide really expert advice on these issues. But we need to have those round tables again. We need to have all of um, Australia on the same page uh, where some people in the community don't celebrate Australia Day. There's good reasons why not is because why they don't actually celebrate it is because we don't feel like we're part of um, a national family. And we need to feel part of that national family because Australia is a great place. And we have so many opportunities here. Uh, we do great research in the ANU and we have a heart for going forward in those Indigenous strategies. You know, I'm here as an Indigenous postdoctoral fellow and I believe in this place and I believe that we can go forward. But we have to do a lot of thinking and a lot of talking and we have to really walk together because otherwise we're going to be left behind again. 
And you gave that example and we talked about that water portfolio going into the Department of Agriculture. So, you know, we don't want to have that type of relationship. We've got to walk the walk, not just uh, you know, not just do the talk. Well, are we even talking the talk sometimes <laughs> as a yeah. country? It's, uh, we've got a long way to go, but uh, let's, uh, let's, let's really hope that, uh, that the conversations we've started today and have been ongoing for a long time actually get some traction and we actually get the action that's needed not only for Indigenous Australians, the First Peoples of Australia, but for all Australians. Uh, it's our future, it's our water, and it's our country. So thank you so much, Virginia. Thank, thank you, you so much, Kat, Pleasure. for talking Kat. to us yeah. today. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as Sue and I did. It was a fascinating, uh, a fascinating talk, I think. Uh, we are really keen to get your thoughts about what was discussed today. You can reach out to us on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum, on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And regular listeners will know that each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of your questions and respond to some of the comments that have been sent in. And the first I want to have a look at is a, some, is a comment on a piece that was published on Policy Forum, and it was called Australia. Australia's suicide prevention plan is barely worth the name. And it was a piece by Jerry Georgiatos. Uh, and in it, he looked at how uh, Australia will only reduce its national suicide toll if policymakers are held to account on poverty, education, bullying, and indigenous disadvantage. And there was a comment from David on Twitter who wrote, I appreciate the thinking here. We nearly lost a family member in May, so this makes me hope for some good outcomes for the work being done. Sue, you've read the piece. What did you make of the piece, and what do you think about David's comment there? Well, I think Jerry um, does a, a really good job in highlighting that uh, you know suicide is not going to be reduced unless we really do look at uh, prevention deeply um, and that means looking at early intervention and the root causes like poverty education and bullying um, so I think he does us all a service by pointing that out um, you know and clearly David on Twitter has got very direct experience of this and you know it's good that it's given him some hope um, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, even uh, if we can do more on the early intervention front, it doesn't negate the value of uh, better intervention at critical points, which are in the, the current uh, suicide prevention plan. But yes, you know, it's it's good to hear that the podcast is, is, uh, is getting to people out there in the community. Yeah, it was a very strong piece, but I thought it was a terrific piece from Jerry. And it was great to hear that comment from David that, you know, it's sort of resonating with him. The second one I want to look at is an issue which stirs a lot of passions. Every time we publish something on Policy Forum about it, it was a piece called Losing Our Heads About Compulsory Helmets. It was written by Craig Richards. Craig is the CEO of Bicycle Network here in Australia. Um, and Bicycle Network, his organisation, has recently published a position paper arguing that Australia should trial a solution where adults riding a bicycle off-road can decide if they want to wear a helmet or not. Uh, he argues that while hatred, fear and ridicule are predictable parts of Australia's bicycle helmet debate, lawmakers shouldn't let them be a stick in the spokes of evidence-based policy. And 
this fairly predictably fired up quite a lot of responses from people. Uh, There was a comment from Sean on Twitter who wrote, Good piece. Sadly, once nanny state laws are implemented, they are incredibly hard to roll back. We live in an infantilized society. And from, I'm going to struggle with the pronunciation here, Car Ambelagen, they're German, I think, and uh, apologies to them for the awful pronunciation. And they wrote on Twitter, uh, compulsory bicycle helmets are for countries that want to thwart the rise of cycling in cities as an alternative to cars. No civilized cycling nation has compulsory bicycle helmet laws. Where do you stand on this, Sue? Do you, uh, would, are you a helmet wearer? I am a helmet wearer. Um, I have to confess it's not a debate, though, that gets me fired up in the way that it clearly does uh, to many others. Um, I I agree with Sean in the sense that um, it's not going to happen when we're not going to relax the bicycle helmet laws in Australia. You know, whether or not you think it should happen or whether you have weighed up the evidence and you think it's the right thing to do. Uh, So I think he's right. I'm not sure I'd agree with them as nanny state laws, but I think it would be extremely difficult uh, and I would say near impossible uh, for any politician to roll back the law on uh, bicycle helmet wearing. Um, You know, and as I said, I mean, it's not really an issue that I've thought a lot about, but uh, my kind of instinct tells me that uh, and I'm kind of in favour of compulsory uh, bike helmets. Uh, I think it works in an Australian context, maybe doesn't in a German context so much. And I do think that we... Uh, you know, and Australia is a civilised country. Um, so, yeah, so, but it's, it's amazing how much anger uh, that this debate does seem to provoke in the community. Martin, what do you, what do, where are you on this? Well, I think it's a very, I do think it's a really interesting discussion. I'm a cyclist myself um, and I follow this quite closely. I, I, I do think that Bicycle Network should be commended for, I mean, they've held the position of supporting compulsory uh, helmet laws for a very long time. And they've recently gone through this process where they talked to their members, they looked at the evidence, and they have made a very public declaration that they've 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 changed their stance. And we talk a lot about, you know, we want kind of evidence-based policy. And that strikes me as an example of, well, you know, an organization looking at the evidence and basing some policy on it. Um, I think it's interesting that you say Despite that, you don't think the laws will ever be rolled back? Do you think it's a kind of lost cause in Australia? Uh, well, that's my view. It is, and I think it's um, you know partly comes down to um, well, you t- you mentioned evidence based policy. Um, I mean, evidence based policy is good, but it has to work in the realities of what is a political policy making process. Um, you know, and you can't uh, just isolate any policy decision from that wider political process, you know, despite what the evidence is telling you. I think one of the concerns that's often raised in relation to this is that rates of cycling have stalled or are dropping in Australia. And, you know, perhaps if you can repeal these laws, it might kind of increase uh, rates of cycling. Do you think that's a valid argument? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what the root causes are of cycling um, rates stalling in Australia. I, um, you know, I don't know if that's got anything to do with compulsory helmet laws. I I would suspect it's due to a whole range of other factors uh, of which 
compulsory helmet wearing might be a small part of. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that's that's a bigger issue, you know, which is what we need to do holistically to encourage more people uh, onto their bikes. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting debate. Well, there you go. You've heard our thoughts, listeners. We're really keen to hear your thoughts as well. Uh, the next one I want to touch on is a piece which was written by Leslie Seebeck. It was called Technology, Research and Development and National Security. And uh, in it, uh, Leslie took a look at how policymakers need to stop being drawn to the myth of the quick fix when it comes to R&D and focus on sort of long-term and long and focus on long-term and sustained development of innovation. There was a comment from Claire on Policy Forum who wrote, it's so good to see creativity and the fine arts lauded in a security context. You've, again, you've read this piece, Sue. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, Claire's comment is, um, is great. I mean, I think it's also... Uh, illustrates uh, kind of wider, really positive trend, I think, in uh, in debate on some very complex issues at the moment is that we have to be very lateral in our thinking about disciplines that contribute. Um, and yes, you know, you wouldn't naturally put fine arts and creativity into a security context, but it's, you know, it's great that Leslie did that in this piece. Um, I also loved in the article this idea of the adjacent possible. Uh, and I know that's a, that's a great term. It's a great it? term, yeah. isn't it? And I know that in my own research, I find that fascinating when you're pursuing a particular question, yet you suddenly get insights into what is actually a very different question. Um, but, you know, as Leslie shows that, you know, that requires investment in in a long-term and sustained approach to uh, to developing innovation. So, yeah, it's, again, a great piece. Yeah, I, I agree. It was nice to see a kind of reflection on the sort of multidisciplinary um, uh, approach to tackling uh, a, a, a security issue. And, and, in fact, talking of multidisciplinary approaches to security issues, last week on the pod we had a great discussion with Christian Barry and Dominic Dalaposa and Jacinta Carroll looking at counter terrorism and civil liberties, where basically the panel got together and uh, had a discussion about whether Australia has got the right balance between counter-terrorism and civil liberties. It was a great discussion. I definitely recommend you giving it a listen. We've had a really good response to it. Um, in fact, on the Crawford School Facebook page, they've been running a poll around the question of whether Australia is focused too much on counter-terrorism or too much on civil liberties. There's still time to get in a vote on that poll, so do so. We'll leave a link to the Crawford School Facebook page on the show notes for today. Well, a big thank you to everyone who commented and a reminder to keep sending them in. They include suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We would love to hear your ideas. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It'll only take 30 seconds or so to find that fifth star, and it'll be a huge help to us in getting the word out about this podcast podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sue Regan, see you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.